Well, we have the good fortune of having Pastor Dean Ingerbretson here today as our guest speaker, so welcome, Dean. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Well, it is a, a delight uh, to be with you uh, this Sunday morning in Kokato. Uh, uh, I am a native of North Dakota. I was born of a mother who was an elementary school teacher and a father who loved the soil. He loved dirt. And uh, he was in agriculture his entire life as a grain elevator manager. And then when he retired, he became the superintendent of a little golf course in North Dakota, nine holes. And he, in the course of the 10 years that he did that, he planted like 300 trees on the golf course. So he really loved uh, the dirt and the soil. I married my high school sweetheart, and we celebrate 45 years of marriage uh, this summer. 35 of those have been really wonderful bliss. The last 10, or at least 10 of those, were a little bit rugged in the early years. We have two sons, and we have four grandchildren. I'm a graduate of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, devoted 39 years of ministry to the Evangelical Free Church, serving in churches in California and Minnesota, a stint at the home office of the Free Church, and also then in North Carolina. I retired uh, in 2018 after 13 years uh, of ministry in Pinehurst, North Carolina. And Pinehurst is the perfect retirement community. It is a beautiful, beautiful location. It has wonderful, wonderful weather. The cost of living is very cheap and there are a multitude of championship golf courses to play. A beautiful retirement community, and we're living in Orono, Minnesota. <laughs> and the question is, why? Well, we have, as we moved into a, a condominium in Orono, and we've got to know some people in the condominium, we, we chat with them, and they ask this question, well, where are you from? And, and they assume, perhaps, that you know, it's from some, one of the houses in the communities there in the metro area, and then they say, well, we're from Pinehurst, North Carolina, and, and for those who know the, the beauty of this area, you know, after we say that, there's this eerie silence this awkward pause, and of course, I know what they're thinking, like, what are you doing here? And it's called children and grandchildren, and that's why we are back. So uh, we moved to Orno in uh, August of 2019. So I and my wife, Trudy, have experienced radical change in the last 12 months, and so have you. Uh, as the congregation of Elam Mission Church. I understand uh, that your pastor has transitioned out because uh, of significant health issues. Uh, you're moving into a new facility in three weeks. And by the way, I've had a tour of that facility. It is beautiful. It is beautiful. And you are also uh, changing uh, the name of your church. So you, uh, like Trudy and I, are going through significant change. So I thought it might be wise for us to talk about change and transition today. And I appreciated what Daryl said at the very beginning of the service about change and transition. You didn't preach my sermon. Uh, thank you for not doing that. But indeed, you really set the stage beautifully for that. So we're going to look at the opening chapters in the book of 
Joshua today, and we're going to walk through uh, a significant transition that the Hebrews went as they crossed over uh, off uh, from time in the wilderness to this wonderful land called uh, Canaan. So, in order for us, however, to understand the significance of change, I thought it might be wise for us to look at a, a video that talks about change. In fact, it describes the changing of the watch at a lighthouse off the coast of France. So, let's look at the screen. interested in applying for the job of being the lighthouse keeper uh, at that particular lighthouse, can we all agree change is traumatic. Change is deeply traumatizing. For some people, even paralyzing. So we're going to look in the book of Joshua today, and here's what I want us to understand. To successfully navigate change, we need to, first of all, understand the realities of change, but secondly, we also need to embrace the reasons for that change. And so we're going to be looking today at both the realities as well as the reasons for change. So I'm going to begin with realities. Here's reality number one about change. To be alive is to experience vast amounts of change. To be alive simply means that we're going to experience vast amounts of change. Now, some change is very, very small, almost inconsequential, such as the change from paper to plastic at the grocery store. 
And of course, now by state law, we're going back to paper. And my thought is, would you make up your minds? Other change requires considerable adjustment, such as cutting the cable cord on your television. And you go with one of the other live streaming apps. Considerable adjustment required if you've been a fan of cable TV for a number of years. Some change, frankly, is paralyzing. That would include the losing of a family member, a spouse, a parent, a child. It's paralyzing, traumatizing. And so to be alive means that we will experience vast amounts of change. Reality number two is that we will all respond to change differently. Based upon our personality, we all have a different response and a different uh, uh, way in which we embrace that change. Many of us might be familiar with what is called the innovation change chart. I think we've got a picture of that to put on the screen. And you'll see that at the very end, on the left side, there are the true innovators, and then on the right side are the laggards. And so then the the majority of people are, are, are in the middle. And so as we think about that chart, you know, there are about 2.5% of the population that are the true innovators. And if you're one of those, I want you to know today that you are the kind of person that makes life miserable for the 16% who are at the other end of that chart. You may not intentionally seek to do that, but that's who you are. And then for the majority of us, we're kind of in that middle. Some of us are early adapters, others of us are late adapters. And of course, it will vary based upon what the issues are. At some points, I'm an early adapter because that was how I wanted to do ministry. I wanted to be aware of some of the new strategies and the new ideas that were surfacing in over 39 years of ministry. You begin to realize that there are a lot of new things that were coming, and some of those things I would embrace really quickly, and other issues I said, I'm going to be a late adapter. I don't want to be at the front of the pack on this one. I want to see how that one plays itself out. And so it's based upon personality and based upon issues. Bottom line is that within this congregation, each one of us is is at a different place. And we all respond to change differently. And so that permits us to learn how to embrace and love one another when we go through change differently. Here's a third reality of change. There is a direct correlation between the intensity of the transition and the stress that it will create. As we think about the Hebrews, they experience a most significant and stressful transition. It's described probably in great detail in the latter chapters of Deuteronomy and the entire book of Joshua. Now, their transition was extremely intense. Their transition included, first of all, the change of location. For 40 years, they had been wandering in the wilderness, in that hot, arid, dry wilderness. And after 40 years of living within that location, They are now going to be transitioning into a land that God describes as a land that flows with milk and honey. Just consider the transition. Hot, 
arid, dry wilderness, scavenging for manna every day, replaced by a land that flows with milk and honey. So, first of all, there is this change of location. In addition to that, however, there was also a change of lifestyle. They would now have a permanent home after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Their 40-year camping experience was now over. They could unpack their suitcases. Have you lived out of a suitcase for very long? Gets old, doesn't it? Gets really old. And the clothing gets to be such that you really don't want to wear that after you settle in back to your home again. Uh, so their camping experience was over. Their diet changed. I mean, just think, 40 years of eating manna. They move into the land, and suddenly uh, their food palate was going to expand dramatically. Think about the number of cookbooks, 42 ways to create manna, burned, never to be experienced again. Radical change in terms of their diet, their housing, even their work. They went to Egypt as shepherds. While in Egypt, they became brick masons. When they left Egypt, they left with flocks and herds, but now they're going to be entering into land that not only would they continue to be herders, but now they would be able to plant and harvest crops. They would be responsible for the tending of gardens and vineyards. And so their work is going to change. There is dramatic change in their lifestyle. Location, lifestyle, and finally, leadership. Moses is transferring his responsibilities over to his right-hand man, Joshua. Now, in the latter chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses is described. There was no prophet in the Old Testament greater than Moses. He is described as the humblest man who ever lived. That's how God saw Moses. Imagine what it must have been like to be Joshua, giving the responsibility of filling those sandals. What a traumatic responsibility that was for him and for all of the people of Israel. The, the influence, the shadow of Moses was everywhere. And so in this one river crossing, there is dramatic change, location, lifestyle, and leadership. I tell you what, if they had taken the stress Holmes chart inventory, the results would have said danger, danger, because of the stress that was created because of the intensity of their transition. And that leads us to the fourth reality about change. Transitions are vulnerable times. Uh, transitions are vulnerable because uh, change is unsettling. We're letting go of something. We're, we're releasing that which is known in order to venture into that which is unknown. 
to let go of something that is known without knowing what we're going to be grabbing onto is traumatic. It's unsettling. When I was preparing for my retirement, I did a lot of reading about pastoral transitions. And I came across a quote by one author, and his comment was extremely unsettling to me. And it was, it was, his name was George Barna, and this is what he said. Leaving office means a loss of heroic stature. And here is the phrase that got me. It is a plunge into the abyss of insignificance. Let me just say that again. Retirement is a plunge into the abyss of insignificance. I mean, don't sugarcoat it. It's just, it's just so unsettling to hear that. And, and if you've recently gone into retirement or you've gone through a major transition, the leaving of an office, you realize some of the significance of that plunge into the abyss of insignificance. The phone doesn't ring nearly as much. The emails, you know, don't come. They're, they're, no one's asking for your opinion anymore. And in one sense, it's kind of nice not to have all the responsibility, but to give up all that influence. It is truly a traumatic, unsettling time. Now, there are indications of this in the text because in Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verse 8, we're told this, that when Moses died, uh, that the Hebrews grieved for 30 days in the plains of Moab. They stopped and they mourned and grieved the death of Moses. But then we come to Joshua 1. Are you there yet? That's been a very long introduction to the message today, hasn't it? Joshua 1. Notice how the book begins. In verse 1, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. He's dead. Now, you've mourned for him for 30 days, and that was a deeply uh, difficult time for them as they said goodbye to this wonderful leader that they had had for 40 years. But there came a point in time in which the, the Hebrews needed to be told, my servant is dead, but I still have plans for you as a people. And so there's this stunning statement Moses is dead, but now then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to you. And so there's this very significant word that God has for them. In fact, there are two key passages, uh, Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua 1, where there's one command that is repeated eight times. Eight times, and the command is this, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Did I tell you? Be strong and courageous. You back there, be strong and courageous. Over here, be strong and courageous. Eight times God said that. Why? Because he understood that transition is traumatic. Change is unsettling. We can go into change with a spirit of timidity or fear. 
And God wants us to know that he is faithful. And in those eight commands where he told them to be strong and courageous, each one of them is supported by something of God's nature. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am faithful to you. I am faithful to my promises. You can depend upon me even though you're going into something which is unknown. And so truly, truly, realities, the reality of change is that it is traumatic. Trudy and I experienced that when we uh, moved into retirement. We planned, as we retired in June of 2018, that we would spend the summer in Minneapolis, uh, actually in St. Louis Park and Hopkins, where our two sons and their four grandchildren live. And so we told them we were coming up there to spend the summer uh, with them. I should have clarified that because we bought a 24-foot travel trailer and we towed it up here and we lived in that for those three months. Well, uh, after I had bought the travel trailer, I took a picture of it and sent it to uh, my kids and their uh, daughter-in-laws, my daughter-in-law, and I said this, good news, kids, we, we won't need your spare bedroom this summer, we have our own digs. I kid you not, within 30 seconds of them receiving that text message in that picture, my sons responded, way to go, Dad. And I'm not sure. I've never asked them. I don't know if they were sincerely happy that we had purchased this or they were just relieved that we weren't going to be staying with them. But we know this. Change and transition has some strong feelings associated with it. And so in chapter 3 and verse 1 of Joshua, notice that it's early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites, they set out from Shittim and they went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. That's an important word, this crossing over. This was a, a, a crossing over experience for the Hebrews. And, and uh, our Bibles refer to it as the great crossover the Jordan River, but it was a, a crossover that went far beyond just crossing over of a river. In fact, I would say that all transitions are crossover events, leading me to the conviction that, that Christians are a crossover people. And so, as we think about the realities of change, that's what happens when we go through a transition. That's what happens. Uh, that's the reality of a crossover. And yet, it's most important for us to understand the reasons for it. And I want to give to you this morning four reasons why we want to embrace a crossover why God puts us through change and transition. Some of it's very exciting as the one that you're going through right now. But what are the reasons for change? I see four of them in our text. Number one, first reason for change is that it's who we are. Now, interesting. A Hebrew was a person who had crossed over from another place. And the name Hebrew comes from a Hebrew word, abar. And the word abaru, from which we get our English word Hebrew, 
abaru was first used as a pejorative term by the Egyptians to describe the Abaru people, the Hebrews who had crossed over from another place. And so a Hebrew was a person who was from beyond, a, a, a people, a person who had crossed over from another place. What's so significant is that this one Hebrew word, abar, is used over 30 times in the opening chapters of Joshua to describe the crossing over of the Jordan River. Now, going out of the Old Testament into the New Testament, followers of Christ, Christians, are people who understand the significance of the cross, do we not? We are people who have crossed over from one side of the cross to the other. We're on this side of the cross. We understand the significance of the cross. We understand the symbolism of the cross. And so as we look at the cross, we see the mercy, grace, compassion, the forgiveness, the love of God, do we not? All of that symbolized in the cross. And yet, the cross is also a symbol of the righteousness of God, the holiness and the justice of God. So we understand the significance and the symbolism of that cross. In a very real sense, Christ followers exemplify a crossover. The Bible says that if you're a follower of Christ, you've crossed over from death to life, from darkness to light, from being a slave to being free. I mean, we are the embodiment, are we not, of being a crossover people. And in fact, our, our transformation, our ongoing spiritual growth as believers is also exemplary of this idea that there is change and there is transition that is part of our experience. And of course, we wait another great crossover, do we not? The crossover from life on earth to eternity with Him. I want you to understand today that a crossover is part of your DNA. Change, transition, probably more importantly, transformation. It's part of who we are. And that's the first reason for change. There's a second reason. In order for us to possess what God has promised, we need to cross over. In chapter 1 and verse 11, notice that God says, Go through the camp and tell the people, Get your supplies ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. So in order for the people to possess what God had promised Abraham some 600 years previously, they were going to have to cross over this Jordan River. 
In order for us to possess what God has for us, it oftentimes will involve some change and transition for us as well. In chapter 3, in verses 9 through 15, we read more about the possession of what God had promised. And so Joshua, in verse 9, said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgasites, Amorites, and Jebusites. In other words, the land that God had promised was occupied. And in order for them to possess that land that God had promised, it was going to involve significant effort on their part. And oftentimes, the embracing of what God has for us will require us to do something in response to that promise. He continues, See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you, now then choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand in a heap. In other words, those priests need to put their feet in the water. As it continues, so when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now, the Jordan River is at flood stage all during harvest. So the water was very high. And I, if I had been Joshua, I would put all the priests from the 12 tribes, you know, I'd line them up. I'd say, tallest ones in the front, shortest in the rear. Because, you know what, to get all their feet into the water in order for the waters to part. And I'm thinking... You know, they've wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. The Jordan River was at flood stage when they were camped along the Jordan River. Now, the, the, the water came from the melting snows to the north of Mount Hermon. And so uh, it was that time of the year where flood stage occurred as this water was melting. They could have waited two months and the Jordan River would be back within its banks and it would be very easy to cross at that point in time. But it's at flood stage. Now, if I'm Joshua or if I'm one of those priests from, you know, the, from Israel, so, you know, God, it's been 40 years. What's two months? We can wait. We can wait. You know, there's a couple of nice RV parks right along the river here. We can stay there for two months, and we'll wait till, till the water's back in its banks, and then we'll go ahead and cross over. And God says, no. He says, when you go into this land, there are going to be obstacles. There's going to be seven nations that you're going to drive out, and you're going to do it at flood stage. Reminding us that in order for us to possess what God has, it oftentimes is going to involve some kind of change or transition, doing something differently. You know, the, the television remote is an amazing device, isn't it? A, a person, uh, generally a male, can be sitting in his easy boy chair and just with the flick of a thumb can change the channel. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. The first television remote 
was made by the Zenith Radio Corporation in 1950. Uh, it had a wire uh, from the remote to uh, the television set, and Zenith called it Lazy Bones. Lazy Bones. Now, it works beautifully, does it not? But I want you to know that possessing what God has for us, generally speaking, does not permit us to remain in the easy boy chair, just flipping a moat and say, God, do this. In order for us to embrace the promises that God has for us, will generally involve active participation, which means some change and transition on our part. And that's a second vital reason why we want to be people of change. There's a third reason. It is to have a fresh experience with God. In chapter 3 and verses 1 through 4, the Hebrews received some new orders from God. He said, uh, after, in verse 3, he says, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. Is that not a great description of a transition? Because you have never been this way before. That's why change and transition is so unsettling. He says, keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Now, they received new orders. Because for 40 years, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night had led the people. And those pillars had led them right up to the Jordan River. But now, as they cross over the Jordan River, it's no longer the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night that was to lead them. No, for the first time, it is the Ark of the Covenant that would lead them through the river and into the Promised Land. Now, for 40 years, the ark had had a prominent place in the camp of Israel. But this is the first time that the ark of the covenant leads them. It speaks of a new experience that they're going to have with God. They're going to see the ark lead them. The ark, which symbolized the presence of God, was now going to lead them into the land. Now, in the Old Testament, there are a multitude of names for God. And those names are all very carefully chosen by God. They, they signify either an action or an attribute that is inherent within His nature and His, um, his work. It's interesting that in, in Joshua 3, we have several different names of God that are used. So notice in verse 3, here is, there's a reference to the Lord your God. Down in verse 5, there's a reference to the Lord. Down in verse 10, there's a reference to the living God. And in verse 11, there's a reference to the Lord of all of the earth. So, Yahweh, Elohim is used. 
just Yahweh. El, shortened version of Elohim, and another name, Adonai. Those names are all used in Joshua chapter 3. Crossover experiences permit us to see another facet, another dimension of the beauty and the work of God. That's why crossover change experiences are significant. They provide occasion for us to see something more of the multifaceted beauty and work of God. That's been one of the experiences that Trudy and I have had in the last 18 months. In this new season of life, coming back to Minnesota in retirement, we've had an opportunity to see God in a new and a fresh way. That's incredibly significant, is it not? Now, some of us have been believers for decades, and we have our sacred rhythms, do we not? Sacred rhythms that have become very meaningful to us over the course of years. And I would never say that there's anything wrong with those sacred rhythms. But we want to beware that our sacred rhythms do not turn into empty rituals. Sometimes it's good for us to shake up our rhythms in order to have a fresh and new experience with God. It prevents our relationship with Him from becoming stale. I want to remain fresh and vital in my walk with Him. And for those of you who have walked with Him for many years, I think the same is true for you. And so, always be looking for the opportunity to have a fresh experience with Him. And that may involve some change. Don't fight it. Go with it so that you can have a fresh experience with Him. Here's a fourth reason for change. It is to see God do amazing things. In chapter 3 and verse 5, Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. The idea of this word amazing is that which is difficult, hard, unusual, something which is beyond human capability. To witness those type of unusual things is to be astonished or to be amazed. And and God is saying to the people, and perhaps He's saying to us as well, that miracles are out there for the person who has eyes to see the work of God. There are miracles there. Now, Notice that word in verse 5, consecrate. Consecrate yourselves in order to see the amazing things of God. It's just a reminder to us that the person who has got the 2020 vision to see the miracles, the amazing things of God, are people who are consecrated who understand that they're holy. They're set apart. And people who understand that they are holy 
redeemed, set-apart people are the ones that have the best eyes to see the great things of God. So, Trudy and I experienced so much change when we moved to North Carolina in 2005. We went there to do a revitalization of a small church that met in an office building. It was a major crossover event for us, and we experienced all four of those realities of change. In fact, in the first six months that we were there, I was called honey by more strange women than Trudy had called me in 30 years of marriage. And I tell you what, when you're only accustomed to hearing your wife call you honey and you walk into a restaurant and she says, what can I do for you, honey? I mean, you are suddenly alert and you realize that I'm not in Minnesota anymore. And we experienced all of those realities of change. But we also experienced the reasons for change. We saw God do amazing things. Let me give you just one example of what we saw God do. Uh, There are four little communities that are just kind of networked together, giving a population of about 35,000 in uh, in Moore County. And uh, uh, when I arrived there, I discovered that there was not one single Christian counselor in that community. I was surprised because here I had begun to realize how significant Christian counseling is as part of the discipleship pathway for people. And so I took note of that and I said, God, someday would you permit us to see that change? And as our church began to grow, we, we, we begin to discover a pathway for God to do that. And so in the last year, my last year that I was uh, uh, on the church staff there, uh, we had a counseling center. Fifteen professional and lay certified counselors seeing over 150 people on an annual basis going through the counseling ministry. God did an amazing thing. Amazing thing. We experienced the realities of change, but more importantly, we saw all the reasons for it. And so you're on the threshold of significant changes that are occurring. You have a long heritage in your community. Over a hundred years of ministry. That's that's a, a legacy. And yet you're on the Door, uh, doorsteps of, of a new, new season of ministry. There will be dramatic change that you're going to experience. Can I encourage you to think about that innovation change chart? You will be responding differently to these transitions. Some of you will be at the front end, and some of you are going to be the late adapters. Can I encourage you? Show love and understanding for another. Be a body that loves and cares for each other in the midst of all of that transition and change. However, 
as you also experience those realities of change, may you have eyes to see God do amazing things. You look and look back and you say, this has been a hundred years of ministry. Celebrate that. Look ahead and say, God's not finished. He's not finished. Someone told me this. When our memories exceed our dreams, we begin to die. Embrace that. When our memories exceed our dreams, we begin to die. I commend you as a congregation. Your leadership and your congregational approval to say, we've got another hundred years of ministry ahead. And we can do that more effectively in this new building on the outskirts of town. Hold on. Hold on. Watch God do amazing things. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you for the faithfulness of this congregation for the past 100 plus years. Thank you for your faithfulness to the legacy, to the fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers, the pioneers who, when this community was settled, they planted this church. Lord, we realize that behind its legacy is a story of the faithfulness of God. And yet, Lord, we also realize that your faithfulness will carry them into the future. May they not be timid or afraid. May they be strong and courageous because you're a faithful God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.